The show is brought to you by adamandeve.com. If you go to adamandeve.com and enter glory at checkout, that's G-L-O-R-Y at checkout, you'll get 50% off almost any item, a free sex swing and free shipping. This episode of Cognitive Dissonance is brought to you by our patrons. You fucking rock. Be advised that this show is not for children, the faint of heart, or the easily offended. The explicit tag is there for a reason. Recording live from Glory Hole Studios in Chicago, this is Cognitive Dissonance. Every episode we blast anyone who gets in our way. We bring critical thinking, skepticism, and irreverence to any topic that makes the news, makes it big, or makes us mad. It's skeptical, it's political, and there is no welcome mat. This is episode 407 of Cognitive Dissonance, and we are actually joined in studio by a guest who we will not have on the air, but we have a millennial in studio. We have, right? You're millennial? Yeah, he, look, he looks millennial. He's got the glasses, yeah, the beard, the, beard. It's the, the whole beard. thing. Yeah. He doesn't eat meat. He doesn't yeah. drink. I don't even understand how he's in Glory Hole Studios, but it is our new employee, Ian. He is here all the way from Connecticut to eat real food. And he waved uh, at the mic, so. He won't do. He just waved at the mic. He so. did. He just did again. He did. But anytime it's we have a, a guest. Of, he's got a lot of studio discipline. I gotta say, Studio discipline on this young man. Unlike David Smalling. Unlike, yeah, he's not dropping. He didn't drop anything. Banging stuff. He didn't, you know, like like plug his phone in. That's going to make a ding sound. So, you know, he's good. And later on in the program, we're going to be joined by Johan Hari. And Johan will let him talk on this time, right? We're going to let Johan talk. He's not going to sign language us. But Johan is going to talk about his book, Lost Connections, and maybe his TED Talk. We're very excited to have Johan on the program. So we're excited for that. But we're going to do a couple stories before he actually joins us. I think we got off the track when we allowed our government to become a secular government. Uh, when we stop realizing that God created this nation, that he wrote the Constitution, that it's based on biblical principles, and, and, um, and, and we allowed those that don't believe in those things to, to p- keep pushing us, pushing us, and pushing us away from, from uh, the government. So this story is from thehill.com. Fake photo of Parkland student ripping up Constitution goes viral. So this is fucking crazy. You know, there was a, there's a student, uh, Emma Gonzalez, um, and she's been uh, very vocal. She was a survivor of the Parkland shooting. She's been very vocal um, about her um, activism toward gun control. And the right has taken photos of her ripping up a paper target. And they have uh, Photoshopped that. And they, they not only Photoshopped it to look like the Constitution that she's ripping up, which we'll talk about why that would be a weird thing to do. Um, anyway, even if that were true. But they also photoshopped her to look like weirdly sunburned. Yeah. <laughs> like she does look like she's on like a raucous or something. Like she's walking, you know, on Dune somewhere. There's yeah. a gum jabar happening right now somewhere. She's got a weird yeah. pinkish kind of hue to her skin. Yeah. With like I, I love the idea of photoshopping somebody. Like, so you're not only you're photoshopping them to change like the thing that they're holding yeah. in their hand, but then Let's also just make her a different color. You know what they also did? They they did a video of this. Um, there's an actual video of this uh, where they 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 actually did a motion of in it. In the video? In the video. Let so me see. If you look at the video. 
oh, it looks so fake. It does look fake. It does look fake. And this person specifically, um, they're saying it's satire and they're like the obvious, this is obviously a satire. You're all mad because it's believable, isn't it? That's the best type of satire. It's comedic reflection reality. That's not funny. Like that's not, it's not funny to to Photoshop or ripping up the constitution because the reason, the, 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 the point of all this is that they're saying that what the students are doing is saying they want to rip up the Constitution. You know, there's no there's no comedic value in yeah. that. You're changing her message, right? Yeah. That's this is not like it's believable. Yeah. What do you mean it's believable? So when you say that it's believable, the idea then is that yeah. I I can believe that the student wants to do this or is one step away from taking that next this leap. straw man is believable. Right. Is what what it, it yeah. really is. Right. Yeah. Because they're not ripping up the Constitution. They're just saying, hey man, maybe your Second Amendment isn't so awesome. Right. Yeah. I, I love too. It's like they're not just they're not ripping up the Bill of Rights, right? They're ripping up the Constitution. It's the Constitution, right? It's so the it's whole like, thing. Yeah, just, scrap the whole like, thing. Like she just got like extra get, pages behind it. It's like a phone it. book. She just get rid of it. Tears it in half. Fuck it. Give me the Declaration of Independence too. Give me every. I want every rule book, every law book. She's using one of those hydraulic cutters they cut into cars with. Just like she's like Tommy Lee Jones in the in the fucking fugitive. She's like I'll rip up every Constitution Bill of Rights. Outhouse, doghouse, outhouse. Just whatever. <laughs> Give me anything made of paper. I'll rip it up. I don't get it. And a what shit. she's actually ripping up is that uh, that specific like target. She's right. ripping up a, a like a target, a, a gun, and, and, a gun target. Yeah, gun and saying, target. look, yeah. uh, we don't want to be targets. And right. It makes you know, it's it, and it makes sense. And they they specifically, it's for this Teen Vogue. And the, like, what galls me about this is that somebody sat down at a computer for a very very long time to make a very realistic image yeah. of her ripping up a con- a constitution. For no, like no for reason. No reason. For well, no reason. The, well, the, the reason is is to try to discredit what they're right. saying to make you appalled. You want to see this. If you're on the right, you see this and you're appalled that she's tearing up the Constitution. Can I ask you a question? If you saw somebody tear up the Constitution, would you be appalled? I wouldn't even think about it. Like, I don't like I wouldn't ju- think about it about the flag either. The, you know I what I mean? You know, like it's not my cum sock. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I'm not like fucking hard See, over now the See, now I might be a little upset by that. <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite one. It was so soft on the It fleece. wasn't soft. <laughs> not even It was crunchy. After it the was first, crunchy. Would you turn it's them inside like, out, wash the cold like water? It's like frosted flakes. So it's delicious. <laughs> I, I could use a breakfast again. That sounds oh, good. God. Yeah. I just like like this this crazy reverence people have for a document. Like this is yeah. look, here's the thing. The Constitution is the best set of ideas a bunch of folks had a couple of hundred years yeah. ago. They're a generally good set of ideas. I, you know, I'm I'm pro that set of ideas. I do, however, think that it is reasonable to challenge those ideas when it's time and to sure. say, like, hey, is this still a good idea? Yeah. Has the world changed in ways that we need to add to it? I don't know, by amending it through yeah. the amendment process. Yeah, and, and for and example, has our technology surpassed what the original uh writers thought it was going to be? Right. You know what I mean? Like at that time and this is brought up all the time. It's brought up by so many different people that at that time, you know, shooting 3 bullets a minute would have been very 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 difficult. Only right. the most trained person would have been able to do something like that. The very the same thing here. It's like, you know, like they can shoot Three bullets a second. Yeah. I mean, or more, it's like everybody was a sniper back then. One yeah. shot, one kill. Yeah. That's all you got. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. you shoot and then it's like you got to pull out your fucking powder horn yeah. and your tamping rod <laughs> and your fucking chewing gum and, then you and whatever. Get, then you got to get your manservant to right. load the damn <laughs> thing for ball you. Your bearings yeah. or whatever. You loaded that thing. Are you kidding me? It was so it's, it's, you know, honestly, and I, and I mean this genuinely, guns are so different that they're not even the same device anymore. 
are. Right. They own, they have the most sure. like rudimentary similarities between the ye olde gun. Pick up a ye olde gun. Pick up a a, a, a genuine 200 years yeah. ago gun and pick up something that is a, a modern representation of like a, like a, an assault rifle, right? Um, they are so disparate in terms of their capability. The only thing that they have in common is that at the end, a piece of lead goes fast out one end. That's it. People don't even understand that it wasn't even until the Civil War that we had right. rifled barrels. Yeah. The right. Manet ball was the first bullet that actually came out, the slug that came out that expanded and was able to use the rifling to spin and increase accuracy. Right. But that was, that's civil war technology. Right. That's Which, fucking almost a oh, hundred years. years later right. after the, the document's been written. Right. And the, and the, and the advances forward from there have oh, yeah. been so tremendous Absolutely. that we aren't, we aren't really talking effectively about the same machine any longer. We're not talking about the same machine any more than the Model T is the same thing as a Tesla, right. right? Would you say that they are comparable? Would you say like the rules that are in place that govern how we should use something like a Model T are the same sorts of rules that you should govern how a Bugatti Varen right. works or operates? Are they are they fundamentally similar in any ways other than their wheeled technology yeah. that sits on the bottom? Right, and their right. wheels are so different. Yeah, right. It's just like... We, but, but beyond that, like this idea that like, oh my God, ripped up the constitution. What a monster. Really? What if she had ripped it? No, she didn't. I don't she want to make it very clear. Yeah. She didn't. But what if she had? What if it was her suggestion that the second amendment as a recent chief justice has been quoted as saying, maybe we need to look at repealing this. Right? So it's not just some fucking student. Yeah. It, 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 one of our current sitting justices yeah. recently said maybe the Second Amendment has outlived its usefulness. Was it a sitting justice or was it somebody who has retired from the bench? I think it, oh, I thought you know it was what? a retired judge. It might have judge. been a retired judge. I think it's a retired I'm judge. I'm sorry. Yeah. I may have misspoken. Yeah. Forgive me if I did. But it, but it's a, a, yeah. it's a previous Supreme Court justice. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's still alive. So How does which, that work? Why? How like, you're just work? tired? You just yeah. don't like fucking like, I'm not fucking going to work RBG anymore. Fucking RBG that shit. Stay in it, in it to win it. Like, what the fuck? Like, until you're like, you know ruling on and you're and, you, and you're getting interrupted by elves just keep going you know what i, I mean i wonder if like <laughs> interrupted by <laughs> elves i wonder if like being a supreme court justice is like anybody else's job though where you're just like i just want to save enough to retire yeah. you know I like don't i don't know. want to work anymore I like i don't like all i'm trying to do my entire life goal is to save until i can retire my, that's all i care about. my entire life goal is to eventually go to work in my pajamas and that's what supreme court justices do <laughs> so i'm good with that i already wear the wig yeah so <laughs> They wear a wig, right? I wear a Merkin. That's America. <laughs> I wear a Merkin. So you don't a have to. That's a just a comfort wig. thing. No, yeah, yeah. That's it's like Velcro too, because it gets stuck on the actual pubic hair. Because that's it's, not you know, and how you're supposed to, to do that. It makes that sound. Oh, so don't edit that out, Ian. By the way, don't edit that. That's gold. That's, that that's comedy gold. Yeah. <laughs> In the name of Jesus, we speak that. Rocket Man. This makes me want to sing the song. Rocket Man. I love this story. This is from Gizmodo. Uh, at long last, fat, flat, fat. I don't know. Maybe. Don't know. Possibly. I think flat is better. Flat. <laughs> flat, flat earther. <laughs> flat earth. I know. Almost. Yeah. Flat earth rocketeer finally manages to blast himself into sky 
at God knows what speed. Oh, that's good. Um, so this is the steam rocket guy, Mike Hughes. Um, rocket man. He had a, a fucking rocket that said, you know, research flat earth uh, stuck on the side of it. And he managed to launch a rocket with himself in it to the inestimable heights. Oh my gosh, Tom. How high did he go? Of 1,825 <sighs> feet. Or Human beings have never been 1,825 feet in the air before. Who knows what the earth could look like gosh. from such a fucking vast gosh, it probably altitude. Looks like, it probably looks like a pale blue dot, I, I imagine. Could you? Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if your eyes and lungs yeah. would work up there. Oh, this is unexplored territory. It really is. It's just, I mean, God, I mean, how, what kind of pioneer is this guy? You know, I've always said we're not doing enough with steam technology <laughs> these days. <laughs> we're not. <laughs> Have we considered? Consider running our trains Woman, upon it. Fix my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my god! Yeah. I, I also so like eighteen. The, no, let's just let's just let's just for the audience. Eighteen hundred yeah. feet is shorter than some buildings, right? Yeah, there are buildings yeah. that are eighteen hundred feet that okay. you can that you, you so can you can like look out, climb up from a and like tall, base a very, jump off. Of. It would be a very tall building, <laughs> no doubt, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, it'd be a very tall building, but it is not. Uh, you know, something you can't yeah. take an elevator to, for example, 1,825 feet is fucking nothing. It's like, it's, it's like if there's two buildings next to each other, the Russian parkour guys would jump buildings. <laughs> <to building. laughs> no right? worries. They'd just be like doing one arm pull-ups off a crane at the top of Have the you thing. Ever seen, like there's been a couple of these where these guys die. Yeah, they fall yeah, off. they just fall right off. Because they're yeah. fucking parkour. That's it's like, like they're it's all like, playing Assassin's Creed it's like, on the top of a fucking building. It's like it's like the Faces of Death version of that one. <laughs> Why did you like, say the Assassin is gravity? The assassin is gravity. <laughs> it works. Curses. Right? Foiled by gravity. Gravity's, like this guy. He was foiled by right. gravity, too. Gravity plays the long game, yeah. but it wins a lot. It does. I'm it just does. saying. Yeah. Like, eventually, we all yeah. fall down. Look at Grandpa's spine. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to read a quote. When he, when he didn't have bed sores and he was standing up. That's what I, I mean. That's what I mean. Nobody yeah. wants to look at grandpa. That's why we put him in that home. That's true. So we yeah. don't have so to don't see have him. To look at him. I'm going to read this quote because this is this. this hope he sends me. me $5. And my, my, my birthday <laughs> card. <laughs> Video of the launch posted by AP freelancer Matt Hartman captured the moment the rocket took off, which seemed to take onlookers <laughs> by surprise, including a nearby group of boys who appeared to be idling, throw, idly throwing rocks into a bigger <laughs> pile of rocks oh the excitement <laughs> oh you know at home, i will say that that is way more exciting <laughs> watching a steam rocket steam rocket run by choo, an idiot choo, motherfucker yeah it, it it cracks me up because it's like the video i have this thing called cosmic rocket at home right so if uh -huh. i've got i got yeah. 213 kids and this cosmic rocket you put uh, vinegar or you put baking soda in it and mm -hmm. then you put vinegar in it and then you shake it mm -hmm. and put on this little launch pad and it goes. Could you, could you change it for like, like Diet Coke and Mentos? Could you do that? You can't. You can also okay. make a works bomb in it. You okay. just put, you know, works and aluminum foil in oh, there. Okay. And that's Good. now, now that fucking FBI has got to <laughs> shoot me or something. It's going to be like, you're oh. going to edit that. Yeah, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> the audience at home, he shook his it's, head. It's like, no. <laughs> Fuck Tom. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, uh, he did get hurt, though, which is nice. He's going to go to the library and check out in your name, Anarchist Cookbook. No, no, like, <laughs> no, no. I want to get TSA pre-check. Uh, it's not going to happen yeah. now. No, they're going to they're gonna do a pre-check. They're just going to grab <laughs> each ball. Yeah. So uh, he did get hurt, which is oh, nice. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, oh, no, I meant that's a shame. I didn't from, mean that's hilarious. From, from 1,800 feet. did And his parachute... 
did deploy. So he didn't right. just like rocket back down. Oh no, to the ground. no, no. I mean, because he wouldn't have gotten hurt. He would have gotten deadified. Yeah, he would have gotten pancaked. unless unless he was in like one of those egg crates or like pantyhose mm -hmm. that suspended him. You know, like <laughs> like how like we gotta drop this egg off the roof and whichever egg doesn't break. Oh yeah, and you suspend it in yeah. like a pantyhose or right. whatever. You know yeah, what I'm talking yeah. about? I do know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. That's probably it's like a the competition to like yeah. not break your egg. Like mechanical engineers or whatever right. join the competition. And that's the level of technology mm -hmm. we have here with the steam rocket. Yeah. It's fucking ridiculous. You, it, it there are <laughs> large hills bigger than this. <laughs> <laughs> if seriously, if there was an ele if you were at an elevation of 1825 feet, you, I don't think your ears would pop. You wouldn't change your recipe. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Water still boils at the same temperature. Right? So you'd be okay. God, what a fucking weight. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings, or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, she may be a communist. If a person does all these things over a period of time, he must be a communist. Oh, this is great. This is right wing watch. This is uh, Wayne Allen Root. Chicago and Baltimore are third world hellholes because they don't practice capitalism. All right, this is Wayne Allen Root. He's at a place uh, giving a speech and jerking himself off. So uh, so this is where he was giving a speech. So this, this may be a little shitty. Number one, God bless American capitalism. There's no other country in the world where it can happen. It's impossible. If you look at every country that has high taxes in the world, their lives are a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> You tell you look at all those, Norway, all those, yeah. Sweden. You look at all those surveys. They're like the happiest people in the world. Oh, where do we rank on and, that? Yeah, I don't know. Do you know where we rank? Uh, Not at the top ten. I, I know where a lot of people in Chicago rank six feet under. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> no, but seriously, like, yeah. fucking it's we're, we're we're not up there, and the the people that are. In the ball sack countries up there. Oh, the testicle the countries, testicle countries are, they're squirting happy. Yeah, they love it. They that, love it up there, even though they only see the sun like one day a year. Well, that's because it's, it's just fucking anticipation. The fucking sun is just, they, the darkness is just edging them yeah, for that the sun whole, moment. The whole sun. It's like, oh God, yeah. it's coming. Oh, <laughs> that sun hits and it's just a fucking 24 hour orgasm. The whole, just, ah, and it's a national holiday. It's edging for the rest of the year. And that's it. Mm. Their lives are a nightmare. What did Donald Trump call them? I think they were called holes, right? What were they? Shholes. Uh, no, what he said was shitholes. And he denied saying it. Except for nobody except believes for, that he no, denied it. So at first, they didn't deny he said right. it. Then the next day, he denied he said it. So his administration didn't at first. They said he right. used very strong language. And then the next day, oh, no, he didn't say that. And then four or five senators come out and said, yeah, he said that. Right. And then the two senators that like to fucking like tickle his balls while they go fucking throat deep on him said, no, no, he totally right. didn't say that. So yeah. we don't really know whether he said but I, it or but not. But I love the idea that even his supporters are like, no, all right, we don't even believe his own denial. We don't even believe that we he don't believe, didn't say it. Yeah, yeah, come on. We all know that he called him shithole yeah. countries. Yeah. Well, is he calling... 
He called like Haiti a shithole country. He didn't call like fucking Norway a shit. He specifically said like the Netherlands is where we should be getting people from. Yeah, but this is Wayne Allen Root. And I don't think he knows where countries are. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or how things work. It's terrible at risk. Who's letting him speak? Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's constantly invading. I put all my cannons in Hawaii. What? I, okay. I just put all my armies on Kamchatka. <laughs> <laughs> And we've got a few sh holes in America too. Chicago is a sh hole. Baltimore really? is a sh hole. There's a few. It's not bad here. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, here's what we don't have: garbage on the streets. That's one right. thing we don't have. That, yeah. That's true. We don't have garbage juice and rats doing the backstroke through it. That's that, one thing we, we don't. do have. Yeah. Good pizza. You're yeah, right. we, we have, have good pizza as well. Right. Um. Okay. All right. Yeah. We have more murders <laughs> per capita. <laughs> okay. All right. You know, you have we to give a little to take a little. What do you, yeah. I mean, but here's fuck, the thing, you know, you got, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. If the eggs are brown, it, they don't count oh, as much. Oh, It's three fifths the eggs. Edit that out. Keep that in there. See, no, his head. Ian yeah. knows that's good. That's fucking gold. Detroit is a sh hole. There are third world hell holes right in the middle of the United States of America. Wait, where it can't be a third world hell hole in the middle of the United States. Like it literally what is the first world? What it, what it is actually defining is the United States. Right. That's what it's defining. You know, to his point though, there are parts of the United States that I, I would be like, I yeah. would say like there are parts of the United yeah. States that are, they are an embarrassment that we allow people in one of the richest countries in the world to live in such grinding poverty. Absolutely. And I, I, I will say like, if that were his point, which it's not, yeah. but if that were his point, I would agree that, that it is a shame and it is, is a disgrace that our social safety nets are not stronger. <laughs> I'm sure this is what Wayne Allen oh, is going to say. I, I, I'm jumping ahead. Net. Yeah. The social safety net he wants is a social safety net gun that he can shoot around poor people to capture them. I, you Live would, capture the Cecil, poor people we are and only, put them in the fucking running man. That's what he wants to do with poor hey, people. Hey, Sub-Zero would take good care of those <laughs> <Sub -Zero>. folks. <laughs> Oh, gosh. The running man. Run. Are you kidding me? Remember when Dynamo had his pants <laughs> up? That's me every night on the couch. <laughs> that fucking movie. Oh, I loved that movie oh, when I, I was too. a kid. I did too. That movie was so. That movie was like. It was the perfect like teenage boy movie because yeah, exactly, it's like yeah. he's gonna fight another specialty guy and it's like I am specialty guy <laughs> and then they have a specialty fight and he kills him yeah. and, and there's a like, the hot chick that he's always saving right, right? The hot it's, girl. but it's basically a video yeah. game he it goes is. up level exactly. by it's level a boss. by level it's a boss every right. level yeah it's yeah. fucking great yeah and he constantly run into it wasn't it a story though by Stephen King initially yeah it was yeah, yeah. is Absolutely. it different not. Not not fundamentally, yeah. Okay. I mean, the co conceptually, it's the same thing. I think yeah. it's a little more gripping as yeah. a book than it is when you see it, and you're like, "Does Man, Dynamo stupid. is Dynamo chubby and have his pants off in the book?" Or no? I don't remember because okay. I had I was chubby and had my pants off <laughs> okay. when I read it. I so see. there's not yeah. room for both of yeah. us in that equation. We're chubby. He hey, was guys. I he said was. and had my. Yeah. I'm wearing pants. And I'm chubby. There are third world hell holes right in the middle of the United States of America where they don't practice capitalism. That's why. Uh, there's no capitalism here. So we just went out to breakfast and we paid. We had to for work. It. We had to work uh uh based on our means. What is that saying? Like work according to your means and then Oh, I know. You yeah. know what I'm talking about? It's like right. that Marxist thing. It's yeah. like according to your means you work and then to each according to their yeah, to means. Each, and, then to, and, then and then something some else. More to I don't the know. Oligarchs. We don't know because <laughs> Is that how it works? <laughs> I don't remember it because I, I learned it like 
20 years ago in Comrade, in this class. is ridiculous. I yeah. can't believe you're not. Oh, God. You're from Chicago. That's so amazing. You would think that this would be like etched upon your skin or something. From each according to his ability and to each according to his needs. That oh, is, we were uh, way off. That was, we were yeah. close. We were close. We were close. Yeah. Like somebody in the audience was going to correct us anyway if oh, Ian didn't do I'm it. I'm glad it was like Ian. If Ian didn't do it. He did it gently. Was, he did. He's, I appreciated yeah, that. Yeah. I felt, I didn't Thank feel you. judged. Thank I felt. You. Um, these millennials are very accepting. I, I, I wonder if folks at the fucking, the stock exchange or whatever are just like, this isn't capitalism. Yeah, it's not capitalism. Like, yeah. Not, I got, what? I literally bring my bull in every day and leave with a bear. I, I don't just, know. I, I just, it's just <laughs> flabbergasting because I know, but, but let's, let's back up because I know what he's, what he's referring to. What he's referring to is the South and the West sides of Chicago, right? right. Which, sure. which, which would be the, the communities, the blighted and impoverished communities in Chicago. And I think he's suggesting that because many of the folks that are in those areas rely upon government services, sure, that's the reason that they're a hellhole. That is insane. Yeah. If you if you just pause for just a moment and think about the life of somebody who is born on the west side sure. or born on the south side of Chicago, and think about the services that they consume and the reasons why those services are consumed and the opportunities available to those people, it's ultra capitalist. Right, it's ultra capitalist. What 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 are they supposed? They they you you wake up. You're born on the west side. You're born on the south side. You're exposed to a lower quality of education, a less safe environment. Your job opportunities and educational opportunities are minimal. Right, and so you know the likelihood that you're going to succeed. Yeah, you know financially and escape those neighborhoods is also minimal. That's literally capitalism. Yeah, it's just the less successful people within the capitalist system, and uh, it's also you know if they're thinking about it, it's cheaper to keep those people poor for for you if you're a, if you're a capitalist, and especially if you're a business owner, it's cheaper for you to keep them poor and to give them a tiny amount of aid in comparison to the corporate tax cuts or whatever, which you know cuts right out of. I mean, that, that that amount of money that we give to those people. Exceeds well over yeah, right. what you're going to give the other. So it's it's even a cheaper system. Those those people that are stricken by poverty will continue to stay in that cycle no matter what. They're never going right. to break out of it. Right. You know, once in a while you'll get a bootstrap story, but most of the time they're just going to stay. But those in are that exceptional cycle. stories, right? They're and just it's like you're saying, yeah, right? Yeah, they're not going to ever escape from it. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. This story is from the Raw story. Uh, Atlanta mom crashes car trying to prove to her kids. That God is real. Oh. This story is, is fucking crazy. So this woman's driving along. She's got a couple of kids. She wants to prove that God is going to protect them. So she's driving along in her SUV and she closes her eyes, crosses over like lanes of traffic, crashes in an intersection. And the children told the officer that their mom wanted to prove to them that God was real and that God would protect them. I love this because it's a quote from the kiddo, right? Her eyes were closed and she was saying, Blah, blah, blah. I love God. One daughter said to the police, she didn't want us to just have an accident. She wanted us to know that God is real. You want to find out if God is real, real fast? Crash your fucking car into oncoming traffic. That question is going to be, the likelihood is the answer is no. Like, that's my bet. Right. If you want to know my, my bet on that question, it's going to be no. But if you want to find out for fucking sure. Also, this proves, guys, your kids aren't listening to you. Right? They're just not listening blah, to blah, you. Blah, blah, blah. I love God. <laughs> Even after an accident. You made that little impression. There's a fucking Ford impression <laughs> embedded into the fucking skin of this little girl's forehead. And she still walks out like, blah, uh, blah, blah. 
Whatever, like mom. Every day, it's like, blah, blah, blah. Dad hates his job. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Mommy drinks her box of wine. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Where's my 3DS? <laughs> so, Tom, let's take a few seconds to talk about our sponsor, our wonderful sponsor, adamandeve.com. It's springtime. It is. And this is normally when you impregnate people. Isn't that, isn't that how this works? Well, it, you can. Or is this when you give birth? When is it? I don't know, man. I All I know is it's always time to practice. <laughs> right. You know, you want to make sure, wanna... you want to make sure when you step up to the, to the plate, you're ready to think about baseball. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't always hit a home run, but I go down swinging every time. I'm just saying I'm bad at sex. But if you'd like to get better at yeah. sex, if you're also bad at sex and you'd like to get better, you can go to adamandeve.com and you can buy things with batteries. And those are always good. Those Very are, consistent. Those are way better than you. It's yeah. going to be way better than you are. You are yeah. not a thousand yeah, RPS, right? Like, I don't care. No uh, matter what you do. I'm so good at it. Yeah. I can do this thing yeah. with my fingers or whatever and you look, do. You do probably produce your own juices, but they're almost certainly not as good as the juices you can get <laughs> right? at adamandeve.com. The long lasting yeah. and delicious lubes yeah. available. <laughs> <laughs> but if you go to adamandeve.com and you enter Gloria at checkout, you'll get 50% off almost any item, a free sex swing and free shipping. So go there now. So we are joined by Johan Hari, author of Lost Connections. Johan, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be with you guys. So uh, let's, 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 I want to get something out of the way first. And uh, I saw an interview with you um, where some people were sort of uh, questioning your new book, Lost Connections. And there was someone who had reviewed your book that might not have read it. And I want to just get this out of the way before we get started, before we move in. Nobody here is a doctor and nobody's saying get off your meds, right? Nobody here on this podcast is saying it's time to remove your medication, right? Yeah, my book says the exact opposite. It's, it's very clearly anyone who's taking chemical antidepressants who, for whom the benefits are outweighing the side effects should carry on taking them. And I point out very clearly, there are specific benefits that some people are getting from chemical antidepressants. And as you say, the people who, who've argued online that I'm telling people to quit their chemical antidepressants, uh, they, to be fair to them, they admit they've not read the book. Yeah. So. Okay, now wait, hang on a second, because... Uh, if I were judging this book solely by its cover, what I would propose is the cure for depression <laughs> is sparklers. Yeah. So uh, is it? I no, yeah. I, I think that no. that's there are sparklers on the cover of this say, book. Yeah, sparklers. Yeah, you're right. Or fireworks. Somebody's like holding their fist up in their fireworks. Movie. Right. It that could. could be. It, it's so. Are you suggesting, for the record? Now I want you to be. Uh, you are being recorded, sir. Are you suggesting, <laughs> right here live? This is happening right now. That sparklers are the cure for major depression. Is that your assertion, good sir? I want to explain to everyone listening. If you are taking chemical antidepressants, immediately burn them. Go and buy like those sparklers. Any other kind of help for as long as you live. Oh gosh. Excellent. Thank now goodness. you you heard Thank it goodness. here first. Breaking news. Oh, Joanna Harry says. <laughs> Oh, I was so worried. Reporting. I was so worried. The best so. way to review a book is by not reading it. I think so. And then yeah. just assuming what yeah. it might be saying <laughs> and then being judgmental about that. So I want, let's, let's jump right in and start talking about depression because sure. it's, you know, the, 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 the title of the book um, sort of belies what it's about. Like explain to us what, what your goal was with writing this. Yeah. Well, there were these two mysteries that were really hanging over me. The first is I'm 39 years old. 
And almost every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased in the United States and across most of the developed world. And I was like, well, what's going on? Why is that happening? And I, I wanted to understand it for a very personal reason. When I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor and I'd explained that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me and I couldn't control it or regulate it. I didn't understand it. I was very embarrassed about it. And my doctor told me a story that I now realized was crazily oversimplified. He said, well, we know why people feel this way. Scientists have discovered it. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains and makes them feel good. Some people are naturally lacking it as part of a chemical imbalance in their brains. You're clearly one of them. Um, all you need to do is take these drugs and you'll feel better. And I started taking a, an antidepressant called Paxil. I felt a really significant boost for a few months. Then this feeling of pain started to come back through. So I went back to the doctor. The doctor said, clearly we didn't give you a high enough dose, gave me a higher dose. Again, I felt significantly better. Again, the feeling of pain started to come back. And I was kind of in that cycle until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose, at the end of which I was still depressed. The the and I wanted to understand really why, despite the fact that I was doing everything I was told to do, I still I still felt this way. So I ended up for, for Lost Connections going on a big, long journey. It was over three years, over 40,000 miles. What I wanted to do was firstly, just interview the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. And also just meet people who had very interesting perspectives on this from an Amish community in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, according to quite a few measures, um, to a city in Brazil where they banned advertising to see if it would make people feel better. To they banned what, I'm sorry? A banned advertising. Advertising. Uh, I thought you said appetizing. <laughs> and I was like, I was very confused. I was like, that doesn't sound, that sounds more depressing. <laughs> like, you know, mozzarella cheese sticks? You're just like, fuck. Yeah. Like, why would I get up? I know there's no cheese curds or pretzel bites. I'm not doing this. They took the staff of Applebee's and sent them to a fucking gulag. Right? <laughs> okay, now I'm with you. Now keep talking. How much flair did they wear when they were in the gulag? That's important. Exactly. Well, actually, I was once given a sparkler in a branch of Applebee's. <laughs> Uh, this fits entirely with our earlier thesis. <laughs> yeah, I just to say a little bit about that, which is that I learned I learned loads of things uh, on on this journey. Uh, I learned, you know, the heart of it. I think is I learned there's scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety, two of which are biological. The rest are factors in the way we live, and this really helped me because um, for several reasons. I realised that until I went to my doctor when I was a teenager, I thought my depression was all in my head meaning, you know, I was just weak, I needed to man up. And then for the next 13 years, I thought it was all in my head, meaning it was just a chemical imbalance in my brain. But what I learned is while there are real biological factors at work, which I write about, that make us more sensitive to these problems, actually, the factors, the causes are largely not in our heads, they're largely in specific elements of the way we're living. And that opens up a very different set of solutions that should be offered alongside chemical antidepressants, not in place of them. This is about expanding the menu, not contracting the menu. So what do you mean by that, expanding the menu rather than contracting the menu? You're talking about treatment options? It's so right now, our treatment option is um, get a bunch of drugs and then not be able to have an orgasm. That's that's your first option, right? <laughs> that's that's your... And then th the second option is get more of the same drugs, but try different ones later when those fail. I think those are our two primary yeah. current and options, I was, right? I just thought eliminating orgasms would make people's lives better. In all sorts of <laughs> I do think that that's a funny... I bring that up because I think it's a funny side effect of a lot of those antidepressants. Is, is the sexual dysfunction because nothing says 
I'm having a great life. <laughs> like my dick doesn't God. work anymore. <laughs> Jesus. 75% of men taking uh, chemical antidepressants experience some form of sexual dysfunction. Now that isn't you know, full uh, impotence for everyone. Okay, 75% but, sounds bad because yeah. <laughs> it's most of them by a lot, but okay. Yeah, exactly. So I think in terms of... Um, expanding the menu. It's not just treatment options for individual depressed people. It's about dealing with these deeper causes. So I'll give you a specific example. We are the loneliest society that has ever been, right? There's a study that asked Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing this study years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, not the average, but the most common answer is none. There are more people who have nobody to turn to than any other option. That's a lot less than five. Yeah. None? Lot- really? The most common answer is people have nobody to turn to? Yeah. In a crisis. Oh my God, that's, that is de- depressing. depressing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're not the only one who thinks it's depressing. The leading expert in the world on this was a man called Professor John Cassiopo, who, who was at the University of Chicago, who I interviewed a lot, who sadly died um, two weeks ago, which is a devastating oh. loss because he wasn't an old man and he was an amazing person. But So Professor Cassiopo showed lots of things. Um, firstly, he showed for human beings, becoming acutely lonely is as stressful as being punched in the face, right? It releases as much of the stress hormone cortisol. Um, and, and, he, and he showed a whole range of devastating physical effects that occur when you become acutely lonely. It's as bad for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. His, his theory about why, which I find quite persuasive, is you think about why do we exist, right? One of the reasons we're able to have this conversation is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing in particular, they weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down. They were a lot better at banding together in groups and comp- cooperating on complex tasks. Just like bees evolved to need a hive, humans evolved to need a tribe. And you think about those circumstances. If you were separated from the tribe in those circumstances, you you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason, right? You were about to fucking sure, die. Sure. You were in terrible danger. Those are the impulses we still have, right? We are still that species. A species of people who were comfortable being alone would have died out in those circumstances. And, and so he proved that loneliness is a big cause of depression and anxiety. There's a massive amount of social science that proves that we have become lonelier than we've ever been. Can, and I, we, can we, I ask an intersecting question? I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, but I, I, something occurs to me. How does that intersect with, you know, some people's more generally introverted nature? So, you know, like when I think about, when I think about some of the people that I know in my life, you know, some people I know are, are quite comfortably introverted. And I wonder how that intersects with this idea of a need for people while other people ha- seem to have, you know, more of a need for private space and, and personal space. How, how do those ideas intersect? Yeah, I remember talking to Professor Cassiopo about that. And it's interesting. There's a natural variation in people's sociability. But interestingly, sociability and loneliness are kind of different. So he made this, one of his most fascinating discoveries about loneliness, it's a subtle one, but I think it's a really interesting one. Uh, he did some really interesting papers on this. Is he noticed, lo- this seems at first weird and paradoxical, because most people who say to them, well, what is loneliness? We don't have any difficulty intuitively knowing. But to develop a definition is quite difficult. And he noticed loneliness does not correlate very closely, just subjective feelings of loneliness don't correlate very closely with how many people you actually interact with every day. 
And he was like, well, that's weird because what's going on there? Uh, and he, and, and he, one of the ways he made a breakthrough and think about this is he thought about the analogy. So imagine you're in a, I don't know, you go to Paris for the first time. You've never been there. And you go to Place de la République, which is the, you know, their Times Square. Or you come to London, you've never been to London before, and you go to Trafalgar Square, right? You're not alone. You are surrounded by people, but you will feel quite lonely, right? Or imagine you're in a hospital bed. Um, you know, you can push a button and you can get a nurse there at any moment. Um, you're not alone, and yet you will feel quite lonely. And, and this, his understanding of this evolves. What he discovered is what does correlate with feelings of loneliness is not your objective social interactions, not how many people you've talked to. What, what, what reduces loneliness is whether you feel you have a reciprocal relationship with someone. So it's not where you're just the recipient of something. So lying in a hospital bed, the nurse will come and help you. If you try and help the nurse back, she'll tell you to stop, right? The, what, what reduces loneliness is where relationships where you feel they'll give you something if, if you ask, and you will give something to them if they ask. So it's where you feel you're, it's an exchange of kind of not money, but moral obligations, duties, pleasures, joys. It's where you feel you're pooling your life chances with somebody else. Helps to explain why people begin to feel so lonely at the end when marriages are beginning to break down and you feel you're not in it together anymore, right? It's not you, You're not exchanging this reciprocity. So it's, it's reciprocal um, obligations and joys, shared moments that reduce loneliness, not just... So, you know, you're not alone when you're in the middle of Trafalgar Square or Times Square, but these people aren't going to, don't owe you anything. You don't owe them anything, right? You, they, you, so you, there's no reciprocity between you. They don't care about you. You don't care about them. And, and so, and there's been, this has been a big increase in, in, in loneliness um, across the, the developed world, really significant. And I was interested in thinking about exactly what you asked when you asked about, you know, how do we expand what, what does expanding the menu of options mean? So this is one of the, the kind of more like a medical intervention that I write about. I like about lots of different kinds of what I think we should regard as different antidepressants. Anything that reduces depression should be regarded as an antidepressant. One of the things that most, one of the ones that most moved me, I write about quite a few in Lost Connections, comes from the story of an amazing doctor I got to know called Sam Everington. So uh, Sam is a doctor in East London, poor part of East London where I actually lived for a long time. Um, and he was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him with depression and anxiety. And like me, he thinks there's some role for chemical antidepressants. They do, they do give some relief to some people. But he could just see just pulling that one lever was not solving the problem for most people, right? That there were deeper problems going on. One of the things he could see is that his patients were really lonely. So he decided to pioneer a different approach. One day, a woman came to him called Lisa Cunningham. Uh, who I got to know quite well, Lisa had been shut away in her home for seven years with just crippling depression and anxiety. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. So there was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as dog shit alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. And he said to Lisa, what I want you to do is to come and turn up twice a week. I'll turn out and support you. With a group of other depressed and anxious people, I want you to turn dog shit alley into something beautiful, right? First meeting, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But several things happened in this group. The first was, Lisa noticed, they had something to talk about that wasn't how shit they felt, right? That, that normally we either give people drugs or we prescribe therapy where they can go and talk about their woe, both of which have some value for some people. But in this case, they decided they were going to learn gardening. 
They started to put, they were going to turn this into a garden. They started to put their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a very powerful antidepressant. Another thing that happened is they started to form a tribe. They started to form a group and they started to do what human beings do when we form a tribe. They started to solve each other's problems. So for example, this is the most extreme example, but there was a guy in the group who was sleeping on the public bus, right? Mm -hmm. Homeless. They started, um, everyone else in the group was like, well, of course you're depressed if you're sleeping on a bus. They started pressuring the local authority to get this guy a home. They succeeded. It was the first time they'd done something for someone else in a really long time and it made them feel great. The the way Lisa put it to me is the weeks and months and years passed in this program. And as the flowers began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program, which is part of a growing body of evidence, that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for a kind of obvious reason, it was dealing with two of the reasons why they were so depressed in the first place, their disconnection from other people and their disconnection. I I actually have a question about that. So like right now we are connected to a lot of people through like social media and things like that. Um, You know, we're able to, I'm able to be connected to people I I haven't seen in 20 years, but I can still see what they post and uh, maybe comment to them on occasion. Um, uh, In some ways we're, we're way more connected than we ever were before. Um, do you, and, and I also want to bring this back to something you mentioned earlier too. You had said you had visited an Amish community. What's the difference you know, this is sort of a two-part question. Do you think we're more connected with social media? And secondly, what do you think about with the, uh, what, were there any sort of interesting discoveries when you visited the Amish, when they're not dealing with technology as much as we are today? Yeah. Remind me to come back to the Amish part in a second. Yeah. I wanted to understand exactly this question that you're asking. It's something that I thought about a lot. One of the places where I made a breakthrough for myself in understanding it was when I went to the first ever internet rehab center in the United States. It's um, outside Spokane in Washington, at Washington State. And I have to admit, the minute I arrived there, it's this big clearing in the woods. First thing I did, absolutely instinctively, was reach for my phone, look at it, feel really pissed off that I couldn't check my email. And I was like, oh, right. Did you so download the irony app before yeah. you left to make sure... <laughs> Exactly. So the woman who runs it, co-runs it, is this amazing woman called Dr. Hillary Cash, who's super interesting. And I spent a load of time there and I spoke to some of their, quite a few of their patients. And she said this really interesting thing to me that really stayed with me. So they get a whole range of people, but they disproportionately get young men, often young men who become obsessed with multiplayer role-player games like World of Warcraft. And Dr. Cash said to me, you've got to ask yourself, what are these young men getting out of these games, right? What's the positive thing they're getting out of these games? They're getting what they used to get from the culture, but no longer get. They get a sense of tribe. They get a sense of identity. They get a sense of a way to gain status. And they get a sense that people see them and value them. But as I thought about it more, and as I spoke to lots of these young men, and as she put it, it's more like a kind of parody of the connection we need than the actual connection we need. I start to think the relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between porn and sex. I'm not against porn, like virtually all men, sometimes I look at it. But if your entire sex life consisted of looking at porn, you'd be going around pissed off and irritated the whole time because your deeper needs would not be met. No one spends, you know, an hour looking at porn and then feels satisfied and held and valued the way you do after sex, if it goes well anyway. Um, the, <laughs> I had a memory there. I thought, oh, not every time. Uh, but the, the, 
you know, in, in a similar way. And I think you've got to think about the moment in history when the internet arrives, right? And we become obsessed with it. By coincidence, the internet arrives for most of us, the late 90s, the early 2000s. And most, most, not all, most of the causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections were already being in place or being supercharged by then, right? So loneliness is an obvious example. What's called the collapse of social capital, that, had, that was well in place before the internet comes along. But what happens is the internet arrives and it looks a lot like the things we've lost, right? You've lost your friends, but here's some Facebook friends. You've, um, you've lost your sense of status, well, here's some status updates. Um, it looks a lot like the thing we've lost in the same way that if you give you know, a copy of Playboy to someone in prison, it looks a lot like actual sex, right? But it's not sex. And in a similar way, it's not. And I think our obsession with these forms of connection is partly a way of dealing, a way of trying ineffectively to substitute for the for the, the the connections we we've lost the connections we no longer we no longer have you know mark maron the comedian said 90 percent of all facebook status updates could be boiled down to the sent underlying sentiment will somebody somewhere please acknowledge i exist yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's no value in these things actually professor cassiopo the loneliness expert i mentioned gave me a really good rule of thumb for this he said you know if your social media is a way station to meeting people offline or staying in touch with people you know and value offline, then it's a good thing. If it's the last stop on the line, then you've got a problem. Well, let me let me let me ask about that a little bit. So, what is it that is unique about a an offline interaction, a physical face-to-face interaction that 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 cannot that that has greater social value or or has greater potential to, to surpass the sort of loneliness problem? I think it's several things. And one of the ways I think about that is people sometimes say to me, you know, for both my books, for this and my previous book, Chasing the Screen, which is about addiction, people often say, why did you spend all this money and spend all this time going and traveling all these places to interview these people? You could have just spoken to them on Skype, right? And I've got to tell you, speaking to people on Skype, you don't get, you, you really don't get 10% of the material you get when you sit with someone. And I think that fits intuitively with what everyone knows, right? You, w- w- when we when we are physically present with people, there is a different character to the interaction. We did not evolve to interact through screens, just like we didn't evolve, you know, to masturbate over images, right? We we evolved. Yeah, but to, we're really good at yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, I, I can knock it out of the park. You know I, what I mean? That's like I'm. I feel like fucking level <laughs> ninety nine <laughs> wizard shit on that stuff, or however that works. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that's going to sound snarky, but I don't mean it that way. Can you make it up in volume? And what I mean by that is like, all right, so there are a lot of people um, for whom uh, they are isolated and, and they're genuinely isolated. And things like, you know, social media platforms offer folks maybe a lesser, and, and I don't disagree with you, you know, and I don't think most people would, a lesser interaction than a physical face-to-face you know, lunch date with a buddy, but, um, can you make it up in volume? Can I have, cause I can have more interactions and I can have interactions with more people online in the same amount of time. So if it's worth 10%, but I can have 10 times more, does it add up the same way? And, and, and I, I think I know the answer, but if not, the ev- why? The evidence suggests not. So there's a lot of 
I mean, it's slightly contested evidence, but there's um, there's solid evidence. I interviewed a, a brilliant person called Dr. Susan Pinker about this. There's pretty solid evidence that the longer you spend on Facebook, for example, the more likely you are to become depressed. Uh, this is called, I mean, the term for it is Facebook depression. Even Facebook admitted that, although they said the solution was spend more time online, but just be more cheerful. <laughs> I love it. Hey, wait, the, the problem is in our product that smile while yeah. you're using it. Exactly. Smile exactly. while you're de- so sad. You're going to fucking smile while you're sad, motherfucker. That'll fix you it. You better mean it. <laughs> it's contested about why that is. So some people say, um, and, and the truth is we don't know. Some people say it's just that um, people who are already more inclined to be depressed are more likely to sit in front of their computer and just sit and scroll through Facebook. And there's clearly some truth in that as well. It's clearly one of the things that's going on, but I think it's something deeper. And um, we know, for example, the more time you spend on social media, not just Facebook, um, the more prone you are to make social comparisons between yourself and other people. And of course, what you see on social media is overwhelmingly a kind of curated version of the person's yeah, life. Yeah, it's a highlight it's, reel. Yeah. yeah. It's, we're basically, we've turned ourselves into kind of paparazzi and PR offices for ourselves, right? Right. And, um, so partly what's going on there is comparison, but I, I think that's one of the things that's going on. I think there are lots of factors going on. But I also think it is, it comes back to, it's like saying, well, I could masturbate over 10 women rather than just have sex with one of them. And you think, well, yeah, but you haven't, it, 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 what's that line that people always say in AA? You can never have enough of something that's not quite enough. And I think there's, I do think it's not quite enough to to just be seeing people in a, a one-dimensional so, way. Yeah, so is it the physicality of the thing? Like, you know, because I, I, I you know, and, and I'm not, I'm just curious about it because I think that intuitively we understand that there's a sort of hierarchy of intimacy when it comes to relating with other people, right? Like there's, there's something like the one-way communication or the quasi one way of something like Twitter or Facebook, right? Which is like a status, a comment, a comment, a comment versus like a text message would be much more intimate than that, right? And more intimate still would be a phone call and more intimate still would be a video call. And then there's face-to-face. So, so what is it? Is it, is it, what is it about? Is it, is it the physic? Is it literally just the physicality of presence that is, that, that helps to uh, shed that loneliness feeling? I don't know. I think it's partly, and I'm going beyond the science here because I couldn't find the answers to what you're you're asking, but there's a few things that are suggestive. One is just the continuity. Generally, we see people physically who we will see repeatedly physically, right? So for example, just before you spoke to me, I was chatting to my neighbor who lives in the apartment below me. Uh, I'm going to see her, you know, probably tomorrow and the next day. And I'm at least going to see her a couple of times a week for years and years, right? So there's a degree of continuity, whereas I'm never, you know, we may never speak again, right? Very nice talking to you and I hope we do. But, you know, the odds are we'll, you know, maybe we'll speak again in another few years. So I think partly there's a kind of continuity and feeling. So we know, for example, there's this interesting research by Professor Richard Layard that found one of the things that gives people most happiness are what are called micro interactions. So actually, we think that one of the things, that's, and we rightly think one of the things that's really important is, okay, you've got a partner, you've got a, you know, my children or whatever, your close family. But actually, just bumping into people in the street who you know a little bit, that is a really important factor in happiness. That, 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 the absence of micro interactions leads to a real deterioration in happiness. I think it's partly that. And that's just the feeling that you are in a place where you are seen that makes you feel safe. That mm. makes you feel you, where you are seeing people, you know, that you, you know, you're being seen back. I think something else that's going on, 
we know there's there's good evidence, for example, um, infants, babies, um, there's a lot of correlation between infant satisfaction and happiness and eye contact. Um, so mothers uh, or caregivers who don't look don't who look after their babies but don't make sustained eye contact, those kids tend to be less happy, more prone to crying, and all so on and so on. So yeah, we are embodied. We're physically embodied beings. We're not the singularity has not happened. We're not in a cloud, right? Um, we we are physically embodied beings. We evolved in all sorts of complex, um, you know, physically embodied ways. Uh, as you know, someone says that a guy called Professor Steve Sloman, who I interviewed recently for something else, said such a challenging thing to me. I, I've been kind of weighing it recently. Um, he said, let me think about how he said it exactly. I'm getting his words slightly wrong, but he said, you know, we're made to think that the the mind is in the brain. In fact, the brain is in the mind. That your whole body is your mind, right? Not not it's not that's not it's not confined to your brain. And this is con- it's a controversial should point out it's a controversial theory. But we we know things through our bodies in addition to knowing them intellectually through you know the more classic picture of a brain, sure. right? Yeah. Um, and 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 so I do think there's something about being physically embodied with somebody, which is not just a sexual thing. You know, being physically embodied with somebody is is more compatible with our deeper kind of human nature. What do you? Th- Let's roll back to the Amish uh, question. I'm very curious what you found when you visited people that really do don't have as a level of technology that most people can enjoy or use. Yeah. So. We know this is another amazing thing that Professor Cassiopo made such a devastating loss. We've been talking about a lot of the things that he he discovered, Professor Cassiopo discovered. Um, so he looked at this group called the Hutterites, who are rather like the Amish. They're a bit more hardcore than the Amish. They're based in South Dakota. So they're like the Amish. They're off the grid. They don't have any, they, they have even less technology than the Amish because the Amish will have propane tanks and things. And um, he did this. So you know, sometimes they say, oh, these groups are less lonely, but you just think, well, is it a cultural taboo about saying they feel lonely? And Professor Cassiopo discovered a way to, to measure this. So one of the things that happens when you're lonely, uh, it's a very good way of measuring loneliness scientifically, is when you go to sleep, you will have much higher levels of what are called micro-awakenings. So they're where you, you just wake up slightly from your sleep. You, you won't remember it. it. You don't wake up fully, but you wake up slightly. Uh, one of the theories about this is if you were isolated on the, you know, on the savannas where we evolved and you went to sleep, you, you, your body wouldn't let you rest because it knew you weren't in the group, so you were, you were in greater danger. Anyway, so you can wire people up and measure how many micro-awakenings they have. Professor Cassiopo did this, and he discovered that the Hutterites, this Amish-like group, had basically no micro-awakenings. They had the best sleep of anyone that had ever been monitored. Um, which shows that they really were less lonely. It's not just they said they were less lonely. Anyway, so I went to this Amish community um, outside Fort Wayne. It's a place called Elkhart Lagrange. It's in, uh, just outside Fort Wayne in Indiana. And I've got to admit, it was really challenging. I'm a gay atheist, right? <laughs> <laughs> and if you have asked, you know, if you've, I grew up in an area, uh, part of North London, as you can tell from my weird Downton Abbey accent, I'm British, and although I spent a lot of time in the US. I, I grew up in... It, Part of North London, where there was a big Orthodox Jewish community, and you know, I thought it was just kind of backwardness. Not, not, not. Uh, I want to stress, not Jewish people specifically. Orthodox Jews, who most of the people I knew when I was a kid were Jewish, and were my, you know, and secular Jews. <laughs> On the opposite, I kind of hugely admired. But, but, but Orthodox Jews who live in a you know not totally dissimilar way to the Amish, um, I just thought they were crazy, right? I thought it was just bizarre throwbacks. But you know, when I spent time with the Amish, I. 
I began to see, while there's still a lot I would criticize about the sure. Amish, don't get me wrong, not least because I recently rewatched Witness. Um, the, the, <laughs> you know, the, 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 I could see they had something we don't have that, you know, I write about these nine factors that cause depression and anxiety um, in my book. And significant number of those factors, the Amish have found interesting ways of dealing with that we have not. So we've talked about loneliness. The Amish are not lonely, right? They are in constant tribal interaction, right? Uh, They are constantly working together. Another factor that causes depression and anxiety is inequality, uh, partly because extreme inequality creates a sense of humiliation in people at the bottom, and it creates a sense of insecurity in people at the top. Well, there is no inequality among the Amish, or at least among Amish men. Uh, there's gender inequality. Amish men have monstrous power yeah, over yeah. Amish women, but which is terrible and one of the many things I've criticized about them. But within the community of Amish men, I mean, the richest Amish man is as wealthy as the poorest Amish man. The richest Amish woman is as wealthy as the poorest Amish woman. So there's no status comparison that triggers a sense of humiliation. Um, there's also, I mean, one of the things I write about is, um, and I'm sure we can talk about this more, but um, a disconnection from meaningful values is a really big driver of depression and anxiety. And um, and as a culture, we've been, you know, just like junk food has taken over our minds, a kind of junk values has taken over, uh, sorry, junk food, just like junk food has taken over our diets, a kind of junk food, kind of, ugh, just like junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. A guy called Professor Tim Kasser, who I write about, has shown that um, the more you think life is about money and how you look to other people, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious. It's a quite significant effect. I can tell you why if you want. But again, the Amish have a very strong sense of meaningful values. Now, I don't agree with their value set in many ways, but they they are very deeply connected to their, their sense of meaning. And, you know, it was interesting because the Amish have this curious perspective on our way of life as well, because one of the reasons the Amish are not classed as a cult by any social scientist is that when you turn 16 in the Amish, as most people, listeners will know, you have to leave. You have to go and live in what they call the English world, the outside world, for two years. You have to leave. They make you go. And then um, and then you have to decide whether you want to come back. And if you decide to come back, you become an Amish. If you decide not to come back, you can still come and visit. But it's a once-in-a-lifetime decision. You can never come back and be Amish after that. This process is called going on Rumspringer. About 80% of them choose to come back and about 20% don't. And, and one of the things that's fascinating about that is when you go and talk to the Amish, they, they know our world really well. They lived in our world, right? And so it was fascinating talking to them about what they saw as why they chose to come back, right? Why they chose to reject our way. And I mean, one guy, really fascinating guy, people can listen to the audio of my conversation with him on the, on the book's website. Um, you know, who, who, who said, you know, Freeman Lee Miller, his name was. And he said, you know, I don't see how people can raise kids when you're so isolated. But he also was talking about, it was, it was so interesting. He, he said, you know, there's loads of things I miss about your world. I miss that 70s show. I miss watching NBA games. Uh, I would love to go trucking across the country. I'd love to go to Jerusalem, he said. But, you know, if I chose those things, I would be tacitly choosing to give up something else, which is the time I spend with my friends, my family, and my community. That it's, that, that, you know, precisely because, for example, they, the Amish don't use cars, so they can only travel as far as a horse will take them or as far as they can walk. He said that forces us to be in constant contact, that forces us to be together, to be a tribe, 
we can't become separated out. And he made this analogy that really struck me. Um, he said, well, you know, Weight Watchers, right? And I was like, yeah. And he said, well, you know, why do people join Weight Watchers? It's because if they, you can't lose weight on your own. You can't discipline yourself on your own, but you're in a group, you can do it, right? And I said, well, wait, are you saying like the Amish is like Weight Watchers for the problems of Western civilization? <laughs> and he said, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I found that a really, no. How many wrong. points is Pornhub say- worth yeah. on the Weight Watchers scale? <laughs> I don't, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. lot. I'm just saying. Probably a lot. That's yeah. why I spend all my points yeah. every day. It's just <laughs> all of them. The Bible's free. You can do the Bible as much as you want. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, it's I like celery. Yeah. <laughs> I think Pornhub would burn calories, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's encouraged on Weight Watchers. But the, uh, that makes me think of, you know, this is too disgusting to say, but, kind of, but to say, you know, Weight Watchers sell these protein shakes. That the whole <laughs> but, um, but no, the, the, it's, it's not that I'm saying we should become like the Amish. Of course I'm not. No gay atheist is going to tell you that we should become like yeah. the Amish. What I think it does help us to do is to set a kind of point of direction on the compass away from some aspects of depression and anxiety, especially since those insights the Amish are offering us are compatible with so much of the science, including science from the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organization, and what they tell us about this. I'd like to shift gears a little and talk about um, your your discoveries about addiction. Um, I had watched a TED Talk that you had done. And mm-hmm. It was absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm coming from it um, from a different perspective than some people. My father was an alcoholic. Um, my father died of cirrhosis, actually, uh, from alcoholism. So I, I have an interesting perspective of knowing what it's like to live with an alcoholic for many, many years of my life. Um, tell us a little bit about your discoveries about addiction. And uh, specifically, one of the things that Tom and I have brought up in the past is how uh, Portugal deals with uh, addicts. Um, that's always, a, I think, a really fascinating thing that they do. Yeah, I'm really sorry for what happened with your, your dad and what you went through. Um, I learned a lot about this for my previous book, which was called Chasing the Screen. Um, and like you, I had a lot of addiction in my family. Um, one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to, and I don't understand why then. But as I got older, I realized, um, I realized we had drug addiction in my family. And um, like a lot of people in that position, I felt a really big mixture of things. And I, and I think this is partly why the debate about the war on drugs, which the book strongly argues against, I think one of the reasons why the debate about the war on drugs is so charged is because if we're honest, I think this debate runs through the hearts of all, all of us, right? There's a part of all of us that looks at someone with an addiction problem and thinks, oh, fuck, someone should just stop you. And then there's another part of us that's loving and compassionate and sees there's something deeper going on there. Um, and... I wanted to understand, you know, there were people in my life who were in a really bad way when I started working on that book. And I wanted to understand what was going on. And it was one of the biggest things, and it wasn't a discovery on my part. I'm a, I'm a journalist. I don't make scientific discoveries, but I was able to interview people who have made scientific discoveries that, that really helped me to understand this, what I thought I'd seen in it what I thought I'd understood in, in a very, very different way. So if you'd asked me seven years ago, what causes, say, heroin addiction, I would have looked at you like you were an idiot. And I would have said, well, obviously heroin causes heroin addiction, right? We've been told this story for a hundred years. It's become part of our, our common sense. It definitely was with me. We think if we kidnapped, you know, I mean, I'm in London at the moment. And we think if we kidnapped the next 20 people off the street, who walk past my apartment in London, 
And we forcibly injected them all with heroin every day for a month, like some villain in a Saw movie. They would they would all become heroin addicts for a simple reason that there are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately physically need, right? And that's what that's what addiction is. Um, and and I only began to understand this differently when I went and met an amazing man called Professor Bruce Alexander. I went to go and see him in Vancouver, who made this breakthrough that's really led to this global transformation in, in how we understand this. So he explained to me the theory of addiction we have that it you know, it's caused by the chemical hooks, comes from a series of experiments that was done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your listeners can try them at home if they feel a bit sadistic. You you take a rat, you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One is just water. The other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go, right? That's our story. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander came along and said, well, hang on a minute. You put this rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing to do except to use these drugs. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats. They've got loads of friends. They can have loads of sex. Which is where the first set of rats went after they OD'd on the heroin. So it's just (laughs) full circle. What's it's that? a beautiful, exactly, exactly. You know, they had they had loads of cheese, they had loads of colored balls, anything a rat could want in life. And they had both the, the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. And of course, they tried both. They don't know what's in them. This is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They don't use it very much. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when they do not have the things that make life meaningful to none when they do have the things that make life meaningful. One of the things I take from this and the enormous amount of human evidence that I can talk about if you like is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And sometimes people, when they hear me say that, think I'm just talking about social connection. And this is partly what my new book, Lost Connections, is an attempt to explore. What does it mean to be connected? And I think part, a big part of it is social connection, but there's a lot more things going on. And there's a lot more that we need to talk and think about. If we, di- the, you know, the, and, and depression and anxiety and addiction are very related. The core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. The drug is an attempted antidepressant, right? Um, it's a very challenging line. Marianne Faithful, the great British rock star, who's best remembered for being Mick Jagger's girlfriend, but is much better than Mick Jagger, I think, um, <laughs> has a line in her memoir, which you know is quite challenging. She says, heroin, she, she had a period when she was homeless in the 60s and she had a heroin addiction. She said, heroin saved my life because if it wasn't for heroin, I would have killed myself. Now, the point she's making is not, Heroin is a good antidepressant. Of course, it brings all sorts of problems that are too obvious to me to mention. But, but the point she's making is people are seeking out painkillers because they're in very deep pain. Um, and so I think we have to understand the connections between these problems and we have to understand what it means to be connected and what we have become disconnected from. And I think these nine factors that are causing depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections are very much playing out in the, in the addiction crisis. And, and so you mentioned, you asked about Portugal. Portugal is a place that really acted on these insights. So in the year 2000, I spent a lot of time in Portugal, obviously, after this, but in the year 2000, uh, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in the world. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin. And every year they tried the American way more, they arrested more people, they imprisoned more people. Every year the problem got worse. And one day the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they basically, they decided to do something incredibly radical, something nobody had done in nearly 70 years. They said, should we like 
ask some scientists what they think we should do. Um, so they set up this panel of scientists and doctors led by an amazing man I got to know called Dr. Huang Gulao. Um, and they said to them, you guys go away, figure out what would solve this. And we've agreed in advance, we'll do whatever you recommend. So they went away, they looked at all the science, including Rat Park, and they came back and they said, decriminalize all drugs from cannabis to crack, the whole lot. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we currently spend on fucking people's lives up, on, on punishing them, shaming them, stigmatizing them, jailing them, and spend all that money instead on turning their lives around, on reconnecting them to a meaningful life. And by the time I went to Portugal, it was uh, 13 years since that had begun. The best piece of research on this by the British Journal of Criminology found injecting drug use was down by 50%. Addiction was massively down. HIV was massively down. Um, overdose deaths were massively down. Street crime was massively down. Virtually nobody in Portugal wants to go back. I went and interviewed the guy, a, a man called Juan Figuera, who led the opposition to the decriminalization when it happened. He was the top drug cop in Portugal at the time. He said, you know, if we decriminalize all drugs, we have a massive increase in drug use, massive increase in kids using drugs. And he said to me, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talks about how ashamed he was that he spent so many years fucking people's lives up when he could have been helping them turn their lives around. So these models are based on connection. You know, they don't solve every problem, but they lead to radical improvements. All right, I, I have a question then, and it's it's probably the obvious question. But so we're we're in this space now where we have we have this need. I think I think you've you've made a strong case for connection. So how the hell do we? I mean, clearly we're not doing a good job of it. We're not on our own doing a good job of it, or otherwise we wouldn't have these issues to solve. And we're yes. and we and we've developed these tools that we talked about earlier that are not the right tools for these real connections. So we, and we talked about that. So how the hell do we solve this? How, how the hell do we connect as people in the 21st century in America with the society, with the social structure that is in place? Cause we can't wake up tomorrow and fix the social structure, the, the, the technology structure. We can't, we can't just, you know, snap our fingers and fix that. So how do we live in this space and connect in those meaningful ways? I think we have to change the space in which we live. If we carry on being a society of deeply lonely individuals, taught that life is about buying and spending, uh, left to scream at each other through screens, we will continue to have a huge depression, anxiety, and addiction crisis. But we have the power to change the way we live. We change to this way, and we can change out of this way. You know, and I, I talk in the book about lots of specific ways we can do that. Both as individuals, there are some things individuals can do, and how we can come together as citizens and, and make these changes. But, you know, when I get pessimistic about this, and I think, oh, this is a big struggle because it's a deep problem, right? Average white male life expectancy has fallen in the last few years in the United States for the first time since the Civil War right? These are really deep problems. <clears throat> I think about a friend of mine who I write about in Lost Connections called Andrew Sullivan, who's a journalist. A lot of your listeners all know his work. Um, in 1994, height of the AIDS crisis, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive when there was no, no treatment in sight. And Andrew's first thought was, I deserve this because he'd grown up in such a homophobic culture. So he went to a little place called Provincetown in, in Cape Cod to die. And as the last thing he was ever going to do, he decided to write a little book about a crazy utopian idea. He was like, well, I'm obviously not going to live to see this. No one alive now will live to see it. But maybe somewhere down the line, someone will pick up this idea. 
the idea he was the first person to write a book proposing was gay marriage. And when I feel pessimistic, I try to think, okay, I try to imagine going back in time to 1994 and saying to Andrew, okay, Andrew, you're not going to believe me, but 26 years from now, first of all, you're going to be alive. Good news. You wouldn't believe <laughs> Secondly, you're going to be married to a man. Thirdly, the Supreme Court of the United States is going to quote this book that you're writing now in its judgment, making it mandatory for every state of the union to introduce gay marriage. And I'll be with you the next day when you receive an invitation from the president of the United States to go to a White House that will be lit up in the colors of the rainbow flag to celebrate what you and lots of other people have achieved. Oh, and by the way, that president, he's going to be black. It, it would have sounded like the most ludicrous science fiction, right? We're talking about 2,000 years of homophobia that had to be overcome, right? Andrew lived to see it. A lot of the people listening to this podcast fought for that moment, right? So enormous changes can happen. Every single person listening to this podcast is the beneficiary of a positive change. The weekend was a utopian idea when it was first proposed. Um, you know, women listening to this show don't need me to mansplain the benefits that happened, but I will just remind you, my grandmothers were not allowed to have bank accounts when they got married, right? Because that it had to be in the man's name, right? That's how recent some of the, and we still have a long way to go on gender, obviously. But, you know, everyone listening to this show knows about positive transformations that have happened. It is a symptom of our isolation and collective depression that we've been made to feel like we just have to accept this whole fucking system as a given and then tweak ourselves chemically in, in, in the gaps in between, right? That is not true. We can deal with the deep underlying ways that factors that are making us depressed and anxious. And I go through a lot of ways we can do that. Look, I do talk about things individuals can do, but I do think we just have to be honest. The bigger social changes for which there's evidence are the ones which will be most effective. And I've seen at work all over the world. I, I got a question and I'm going to, I'm going to roll it back just a little bit to addiction. One of the things that I wonder if you got any pushback from when you say like, you know, someone is taking those drugs or, you know, using those substances to escape their reality, do the people around them, the, their, their people, like, you know, like their family or whatever, do they resent this idea? Because in a way they're, you're, you're saying they're escaping from their family, right? They're escaping from people that are around them. Is there some sort of pushback from people who have been close to people who have been addicted? Some of the people who've most championed Chasing the Scream, the book where I write about this, have actually been the families of people with addiction problems. And, you know, obviously I had a lot of addiction in, in, in my own family. I think part of the problem is we're taught to think in such an individualistic way, right? When I was a kid, Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister, said, there's no such thing as society there's only individuals and their families. And as you can probably guess, I never liked Margaret Thatcher, but <laughs> I've realized how much I had internalized that. So if you've internalized that, then when someone comes along and says there are these deep social causes of depression, anxiety, and addiction, what a lot of people hear is, fuck, he's saying I'm a failure, right? He's saying, he's saying I screwed up, right? Or he's saying, you know, I didn't treat my son well enough, rather than saying actually the society didn't didn't give your son or your daughter or your brother or whoever it is, the things that we need to have a meaningful life, right? The, the, but but if, if you think, as Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society, only individuals and, your fam and their families, then, then you will hear that as a criticism. But I'm not saying that. 
I'm saying I'm talking about much wider social. There's no one in in the United States or anywhere in the world where all they have in their life is their family, right? Right, right. If you even if you live on a mountain and you you know you you don't only have your family, um. So yeah, this isn't about um, and and I think it helps families to understand the suffering in a different way. It also helps them to see through some of the very bad advice I think families are are given. One of the things I tried to do. And I can't say I do this consistently, and I certainly, you know, there's a lot of times I can't do it with people I love. But I tried to be more Portuguese. I tried to be more present with them. I tried to not express my anger to them, but to be present with them and say, well, I love you unconditionally. I'm here for you. I'll come and sit with you when I can to strengthen my connection, not threaten my connection. Like, so an intervention, like an intervention, right? So like something like an intervention. Of an intervention, actually, because if you think about that show intervention, which admittedly is the extreme end of interventions, what that does is it says, well, we love you and our love for you is entirely contingent upon you doing one thing, which is going away in, uh, to a treatment model that frankly doesn't work for most people. Uh, and um, which in fact fails for the big majority of people who, who go through it. And then if you if you don't continue turning to, if, if you don't stop turning to the anesthetics you feel you need, we're going to shun you, right? Well, that's that's the opposite of unconditional love. That's making your love contingent on something that is extremely difficult to do and actually probably not very good for the person in many ways. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that you should, you know, no one is obliged to sacrifice themselves for someone else. And if it becomes untenable for you to be in a relationship or if you're, but you know, you can have untenable relationships with people with addiction problems. You can have untenable relationships with people who don't have addiction yeah. problems. Right? I mean, it's not this is not unique to debates about addiction, right? Of course, we can all have situations where we're treated badly and decide, you know, okay, well, it's not about... Um, but I really dislike this concept of enabling. Um, of course, you people can get into destructive relationships with, with um, people who have addiction problems, but too often that's premised on the idea that the problem for the person with the addiction is their drug use, Right. The drug use is a symptom of the problem. Now, it's a symptom that can make the problem much worse. Don't misunderstand me, right? It can kill you. But the, but the, but the, the problem is not the drug, right? The, the problem driving this is largely, the drug plays some role, of course, the problem is largely the pain that is making the individual want to anesthetize themselves in the first place. And for that, you have to look to the much broader solutions, things like Portugal, like what they did in Switzerland, I can tell you about that, or these deeper forms of um, reconnection that I write about in Lost Connections, which are about dealing with our collective despair. And, you know, there was, there was a place that, it's funny, I learned about so many of these things from experts, and there were key moments when these things fell into place for me. Um, and one of them was, I went and interviewed this um, South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield, who happened to be in Cambodia in 2001, when chemical antidepressants were first introduced in Cambodia. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, were like, what are these drugs? They'd never heard of them. So he explained, and they said to him, oh, we don't need them. Uh, we've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of you know, herbal remedy. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who one day stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. Um, so they gave him an artificial limb and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's super painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. I'm guessing it was traumatic for obvious reasons. Um, the guy starts crying all day, doesn't want to get out of bed, classic depression. They said, so we gave him an antidepressant. Derek said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. They figured if they bought him a cow... He could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was making him feel so bad. 
They bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Derek, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression or distress the way we have, that it's a chemical imbalance in your brain, that sounds like a really bad joke, right? I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow. <laughs> Those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively. I mean, to be fair, they got three magic beans as well. Yeah. So, I mean, that's <laughs> not the whole story. Exactly, exactly. But, but what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the World Health Organization, the leading body in the medical body in the world, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, your pain makes sense. You're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. And this connects back to what we're saying about addiction. Everyone knows that human beings have physical needs, right? Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. There's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel a future that makes sense. Our culture is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today. But we are getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs, which is why it's not the only thing that's going on, but it's one of the factors in why we have such a big depression, anxiety, and addiction crisis. And we've got to deal with those, those deeper problems. Johan, uh, if people were going to find your work, uh, where would they look? Oh, I've been told by my publicist, uh, publicist to say a little spiel about this, which always makes me feel like an absolute dick. <laughs> uh, if you would like to find out what a whole range of people, from Elton John to Hillary Clinton to Russell Brand to Ariana Huffington to Glenn Greenwald have said about the book, uh, if you want to take a quiz to see what you know about the real causes of depression and anxiety, if you want to listen to audio of loads of the people we've been talking about, like those Amish guys who are really funny and interesting, you can go to, or where you can get the book uh, and the audiobook. You can go to www.thelostconnections.com. It's not lostconnections.com because there's a fucking band called Lost Connections. <laughs> <laughs> don't even exist anymore. I mean, no disrespect to them. I'm sure they're very nice people, but they fucking bought all the websites. Uh, so, um, the, uh, and also on that site, you can see where to follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Although I had this weird experience at the end of an interview recently where they said to me, so what's your Twitter? What's your Facebook? What's your Instagram? And then they said, what's your Snapchat? And I said, I am a 39-year-old man. Only <laughs> <laughs> 39-year-old men on Snapchat are certainly pedophiles. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a theory. That we should, you know that show to catch a predator? Yeah. What they should do is instead of doing all this elaborate detection work where they catch pedophiles by like tracking them, so they should literally just go up to grown men in the street and say, hi, what's your Snapchat handle? <laughs> <laughs> They just take a look if there's if there's a Snapchat picture yeah. like a selfie with like dog ears yeah. on it. It's like okay, just come to jail right now. Just come to jail right now. This this puppy face Snapchat selfie. Come the fuck. Are you on. Big Daddy 1970? Is that who you are? I think uh, the ACLU will like issue a statement saying, "I know we've stood up for civil rights for a really long time, but in this rare instance, fucking throw them away and look up the key <laughs> on Snapchat." Can't tolerated. Right? Uh, that's amazing. Johan, it was absolutely amazing it's talking to you today. Uh, really informative. Oh, uh, great. Cheers. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. So we want to thank our patrons, Nick, Mario, Mark, Brandon. <laughs> I'm a rapist. Uh, well, Jesus there we go. Christ. Well, now, now I'm screwed. I That's said it, it out loud, and now somebody's like sampling it, that audio out of context. Right? That's amazing. Morgan, Jacob, and Jesse, thanks so much for your generous donations. We really do appreciate all the donations to Glory Hole Studios. You're the ones who make sure Glory Hole Studios exists, and you're the ones who pay our employee. 
Uh, so thank you very much. We got a message from Brimstone Gridlock who said, um, you guys passed over the LSD possession uh, on the person who was, uh, he had a bunch of child porn on his priest, uh, yeah. priest who had like some really sadistic gross child porn. He also had an LSD um, charge and Tom had said, that's not a big deal. And you had said, well, maybe he dosed children with it. That's possible, but didn't say that anything like that in the article. So yeah, maybe know. he didn't like, yeah. we, we, we don't know. Well, so I you don't, don't want to, yeah, he's done enough awful shit that you don't have to speculate about whether or not he did other awful shit. Yeah, like, right. He also had a hammer. We don't know that he hit anybody yeah. with a hammer. <laughs> it's very true. You know? Yeah. Like, so I don't, we can't be sure that that's what right. he did. So we got a message, a bunch of messages about the Chupacabra this is amazing. group. And so I want to, I want to braid some of these off. Um, Ashley said, um, they would not have had a wedding cake at a chupacabra wedding. Instead, they would have had a chupacobbler. And nice. I, absolutely. And I, 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 that was our mistake. That's terrific. And then um, Aaron said a group of a group of chupacabras would be a chimichanga. I like it. I think that's that's pretty accurate. Um, also, um, Aaron said that uh, chupacabra Kai is uh, a dojo in the Karate Kid. Nice. And that makes sense. I, I like it. Very very strange form of karate that they practice. Um, there's also a group of chupacabras could be known as a chunk, according to Wayne, a chunk of chupacabras. All and right. that doesn't really roll off the tongue, it turns out. It's more like a tongue twister. It is. A chunk of chupacabras. Uh, here's another chupacabra message. This one's from Twitter. Samuel Kane on Twitter says, I was listening to episode 406. The name for a group of chupacabras is a liberal cabal of chupacabras. Oh my God. And I think that's true. This is another one. This one is from Sam on Twitter. And he says, to answer your question... A group of chupacabras is called a group of cabras. Group of cabras is great. <laughs> I think that's the winner. Uh, Keith says a burrito of chupacabras. That's tasty. A group of chupacabras from dysfunctional vet. A group of chupacabras is also called a menudo of chupacabras. And and they sent a picture that is just outstanding. It's just that a weird tongue. Goat. It's goat. a goat liquor. That's perfect. Oh, I get it. Yeah. So we got a, a message. Um, and this one is from Dylan. And Dylan said, I just wanted to send you guys a message about uh, about this SNL skit from 1998 called the, A Car Called the Mercury Mistress. And he's talking about the Alex Jones thing where he's like, hey, I have sex with our cars. Right. And so this, this is, is a, genius. It's hilarious. We'll it's put so a, funny. We'll put a link on this week's show notes. This is episode 407. So check it out. Tom, we got a message about the, uh, the bee therapy from Joe. Yeah, Joe was concerned. Um, her father, it looks like, had had attempted or used the bee therapy. It did not work out. There's some tragic consequences for it. And I think the the concern here is that if it's if it's poo-pooed or um, sort of glossed over, it it kind of bypasses some of the harms that these alternative therapies do to patients. A lot of patients or some patients um, may choose an alternative therapy like an AP therapy, which is the crazy bee singing shit, um, in lieu of conventional uh, yeah. Western medicine or conventionally right. proven therapies. We've discussed that idea many, many, many times, many times in, the yeah. in the past. Yeah. We know that that's a concern. In fact, I think, to be perfectly honest, that's the chief concern that Cecil and I have regarding Wu. If, yeah. if, if you were getting regular Western medical care and then also just wasting your money on you know Reiki, I don't think I would give a shit as long as it's your money and you're not like on a fixed income falling prey to a con man, right? People waste their money on things they like that don't work all the time. Sure. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. We care because of the harms these yeah. things do. And that's that is one of the central harms that alternative therapies can have. Yeah. And um we talked about this very recently, actually, when we were talking about um some major large hospitals offering alternative care. And we were mentioning how right. how difficult that might be because they're giving legitimacy to this this care. 
And that's something you don't want to do. You no, don't want yeah. to give any legitimacy to, sure. this, to this wacko woo therapy because it's because there is no, there's nothing that says it works. Yeah. It's just, it's just hope. Yep. And there's nothing behind yeah. it. Well, there's a bee behind it, actually. There's <laughs> venom in there the is. stinger in the pulsing yeah. sack that continues to envenomate you. So we want to thank uh, Johan Hari for joining us today. Uh, Johan is the author of Lost Connections. We're going to post uh, links to his work on this week's show notes, 407. It was great to talk to Johan. Really interesting conversation. All right, so that's going to wrap it up for this week. Um, we're going to leave you, like we always do, with The Skeptic's Creed. Credulity is not a virtue. It's fortune cookie cutter, mommy issue, hypno Babylon bullshit. Couched in scientician, double bubble, toil and trouble, pseudo quasi alternative, acupunctuating, pressurized, stereogram, pyramidal, free energy, healing, water, downward spiral, brain dead pan, sales pitch, late night info docutainment. Leo Pisces, cancer cures, detox, reflex, foot massage, death in towers, tarot cars, psychic healing, crystal balls, Bigfoot, Yeti, aliens, churches, mosques, and synagogues, temples, dragons, giant worms, Atlantis, dolphins, truthers, birthers, witches, wizards, vaccine nuts, shaman healers, evangelists, conspiracy, doublespeak, stigmata, nonsense. Expose your signs. Thrust your hands, bloody, evidential, conclusive. Doubt even this. The opinions and information provided on this podcast are intended for entertainment purposes only. All opinions are solely that of Glory Hole Studios, LLC. Cognitive dissonance makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, currentness, suitability, or validity of any information, and will not be liable for any errors, damages, or butthurt arising from consumption. All information is provided on an as-is basis. No refunds. Produced in association with the local Dairy Council and viewers like you.